as Esther said, we're, carrying, we're starting a series this morning uh, in Isaiah, and we're starting by looking at Isaiah 6. Uh, vision of God is what we're looking at this morning. Um, and, hi, uh, we need to go fast, because I've got a lot I want to try and cover, so I'm going to try and go fast, and probably also accompanyingly loose. So apologies to my wife for that as well. I know she appreciates care and precision in her sermons, but this one is going to be more like rapid, broad brushstrokes. So forgive me, bear with me, and let's crack on. Right, we've done that one. So we're going to read the passage in a minute, um, but just before uh, we actually look at the text of Isaiah 6, um, I want to say a little bit about why I think vision matters, why our vision of God in particular matters. Um, and Esther did a brilliant talk at the start of the year a few weeks ago, go listen back to it if you haven't already, uh, in which she touched on this idea of us having a deeper, richer calling in our Christian lives uh, than just basically being here to say one prayer and get all right with God and hopefully get away with it. That there's there's a reason for every part of our life, all the small moments of it, that we have a deeper, richer calling with what our time is for. Uh, and my sort of shorthand to myself for what that deeper, richer calling is, uh, is learning to be at home in God's domain. And what I mean by that is that as Christians, we believe that at some point, God's domain is going to be fully realized, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, that at some point uh, God's domain will be the entirety uh, of the domains that are, and that the reason that we've got a whole life without these just fixed set of formulaic instructions to follow, but a whole complicated life of grappling together and trying to work out what it means to follow God and to live like Jesus. And the whole reason we've got that is because that is a learning time, a chance for us to form our character and try to learn what it's like to be at home in that domain when it's fully realized. So that when we step into the full domain of God, God's kingdom as it's often called, we won't be lost or confused or frightened or disoriented. We will be there and we will say, oh yeah, this is home. This is what I always wanted it to be like, and I understand how this works, because I've had a whole lifetime of learning to be at home in that domain. Does that make sense to everybody? You with me so far? Um, if that is the case, if that shorthand is at all accurate, then that's why, to me, vision is so important. Because being at home in someone's domain follows from our vision of that person, right? What it means to be at home in someone's domain depends on who that person is. Is this a no-shoes-upstairs kind of house? Is this a, like, jump-on-the-sofa kind of house? Can I help myself to that tin of biscuits in the cupboard, or is that not so cool here? What it means to be at home in someone's domain depends on what we understand that person to be like, uh, and that is exactly the same with God. We could say, to put it another way, vision shapes response. How we respond to God, how we respond in our lives, depends on what our vision of God is. And so, for example, if your vision of God is, I don't know, say, a giant turtle on top of another giant turtle on top of another giant turtle floating through space with the world on its back, just, you know, maybe, could be, then... How you respond to that, I don't know, maybe you would need to learn to swim or develop a taste for, I said to Carolyn the other day, develop a taste for lettuce, but apparently that's tortoises, not turtles. <laughs> I don't know, wherever a turtle is, kelp? Is kelp a thing? I don't know. If it's a turtle on a turtle on a turtle, you might need to learn to swim or eat kelp. If, for example, your vision of God is that God is a pink teapot orbiting 
the sun or Mars or somewhere else. I mean, I don't really know what you do in response to that. Maybe wean yourself off your taste for coffee? I don't know. Um, if, maybe a bit more commonly, your vision of God is that she is an angry guardian of the fixed rules who sits in the sky watching for people to get something slightly wrong to throw a thunderbolt down at them, then maybe you'd spend your life trying really hard to work out exactly what those rules are and sort of maneuvering yourself, Catherine Zeta-Jones-like, through the laser beams, delicately making sure you don't break any of them and get zapped. I think that one probably is out there. Um, if, by the way, your vision of God is one that jolts a little bit when I say she, and your vision of God is that God is always and only he in particular, well, first of all, maybe try rereading Genesis 1. Uh, but also, I mean, well, ridic- you know, imagine if your vision of God was that God was always only he. Imagine the ridiculous contortions you'd put yourself through in that situation. You know, you'd end up sort of paying men more than you did women because you thought they were somehow closer to superiority or you'd sort of get into this situation where you expected by default that most people in most positions of leadership in most of the world would obviously be men because they're closer to God. Oh, wait a second. (laughs) I say that flippantly, but genuinely, you know, it might seem like a small thing that, oh, God, obviously God means he. But the words we use do matter because those words shape our vision and our vision shapes our response. And so we need to be really careful that we don't end up living in a world where we think that God must mean a man. But whatever your vision of God is, whether it is a turtle or a teapot or a thunderbolt thrower or a typical man or whatever else, that vision shapes your response to God. And so one thing, I'm doing a little bit of application here before we even look at the Bible. Unbelievable. (laughs) Um, But one thing I think is really important that we should do is just say what our visions of God are to each other more often than we do. I think it's really easy to go through life walking around assuming that the vision of God that's in my head is the same that's in yours. And so we talk to each other and we might be talking about, I don't know, the might of God and you're picturing one thing and I'm picturing the giant foreleg of a turtle. I don't know. (laughs) Like, we just need to say what our visions of God are to each other more often so that we hear each other and we see... um, what it is that we are responding to. So, that's why vision matters. Our vision of God shapes our response to God. So with all that said, let's take a little bit of time to look at what Isaiah's vision in particular in chapter 6 is. Uh, And there's two things I'm going to ask you to do about this afterwards. Okay, So as we're reading through this, um, just be trying to take it in. I'm going to ask you what jumps out to you about Isaiah's vision, and what that should mean in response. But for the first read-through, just pay attention to what jumps out for you. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the tra- I'm going to use my own example here, by the way. I'm going to say, and the train of God's robe filled the temple, because otherwise we'll skew our vision by our language. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of God's robe filled the temple. Above God were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of God's glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook 
and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Okay, so that's Isaiah's vision of God. So as I said, the first thing that I would like to see us all chatting about afterwards, maybe come tell me, I don't know, uh, just useful to be thinking about, is what do you notice about that vision? And in what ways is it like or unlike yours? The vision of God that you carry around in your head, is that familiar to what Isaiah sees there? Or does that feel really, really different? What are the things that stand out about it to you Uh, And is that what you expected? And then the second one, and this is probably a bit of homework that you need to do over the next week or so, I don't know, you need to spend a bit more time looking at the text, but it's to think about in what way does that vision of God, either the one that you've got in mind, but I'm talking specifically here about the one that Isaiah sees, how does Isaiah's vision shape our response and Isaiah's response? And part of that is you can go and read the rest of Isaiah and read the things that Isaiah says and see if there are ways in which that vision of God plays out in the things that Isaiah says and does. And go see if those things that you noticed play out in Isaiah's lived response. So I'm just going to use the rest of the time we've got this morning, I'm going to give you two a couple of 2P thoughts from me on those two questions. But these are not like the final or the right answers. These are just my sort of prompts back to you. These are the things that jump out to me. But as with that idea of the vision of God, I think it's really important that we keep talking to each other and swapping notes with each other and bouncing off each other's ideas. Uh, And so I want this to sort of get you started on doing the same thing. But I'm the one with the microphone, so here's my 2P. (laughs) So what do I notice about the vision in Isaiah 6. The first thing that really jumps out to me is that sense of terrifying power. Um, That this is a scary and overwhelming um, vision of God. And we get this idea of these uh, sort of terrifying sounding angels, seraphim, and the sound of their voices is loud enough to shake the doorposts. The temple is filled with smoke And Isaiah's, that might sound glorious, but to me it sounds scary. That might sound sort of impressive. To me it speaks of um, just a power that we can't keep up with. And I think you see that in Isaiah's response. Woe to me, I am ruined. His immediate response to a vision of God is to try and get out of there, to panic, to throw himself to the floor and, and be afraid. And I think you see this a lot in lots of visions of God. Adam and Eve hide in the garden. Peter, when he realizes who Jesus is, says, away from me, I'm a sinful man. Angels all the way through the Bible tell people not to be afraid. Um, I don't know if this is going to work. Maybe not. Oh, it does. This is a little animation I found online. Somebody tried to do a rendering of a more accurate picture of what angels might look like based on the descriptions you get in things like Ezekiel. That's pretty terrifying. (laughs) I think. Um, 
And, and so I think this, you do see this really common response of fear and awe and terror and dread when people encounter God um, because God is just so much bigger and more powerful and just dimensions above anything we can imagine. And that's frightening. So that's the first thing that jumps out to me is the sense of terrifying power in this vision. And the second thing, immediately following on the heels of it, is this sense of welcoming grace. Now, admittedly, in this passage, the way that that plays out is still, in its own way, quite terrifying. It involves one of these giant angels coming down and putting a burning coal to Isaiah's lips. Uh, That still sounds quite scary and literally painful. But the point is that Isaiah thinks he can't possibly exist in the presence of God, that this vision is so overwhelming and so powerful and so holy and so much beyond him that he is ruined, that he is going to be obliterated just by being there. And then God intervenes and reaches out and with all of that power, all of that overwhelming, all of that dimensions bigger, stretches out a hand that is small enough and gentle enough to touch something to Isaiah's lips and say, you're okay to be here. Your sin is taken away. And then he asks him, who am I going to send? But Isaiah is expecting ruination, is expecting to be just smashed to pieces by being in this place. And then it's immediately followed by the grace of God that gives him permission to be there. Those are the two things that jump out to me. I think both of those things are common to quite a lot of people's visions of God and certainly true to mine. When I say visions of God, I don't necessarily mean sort of almost hallucinatory, um, literally visual experiences. I mean your idea of God, your sense of who God is. And, And both of those I recognize in my own sense of who God is. And certainly there have been times for lots of people and for me when you first encounter God, especially where you are completely blown away and overawed by that sense of terrifying power. It's like being on the edge of an enormous precipice or chasm or being at the foot of an enormous building. You know, you're worried you might plunge into it or, or be crushed by it, that this thing is so much bigger than you. I think that's quite a common uh, response to a vision of God and certainly is for me. But also at the same time, that sense of even though you have no right to be able to be here, the grace of God is gentle enough and welcoming enough to permit you to be in God's presence. That's very true of my vision of God. Uh, And sort of you might summarize that. For me, it's this sense of a divide that we've got no right to cross, this kind of yawning chasm between me and God that I've got no right or ability to be able to get across, but God makes possible. That's in my vision of God, and I think it's in Isaiah's. It might be something different for you. It won't be the same for everybody. That might not be familiar to you. You might have had a different thing that jumped out to you from that passage in Isaiah, a different thing from your experiences of God. That's why it's important we talk to each other about them. And so then lastly, I just want to finish on If that is in our vision of God, if that's in Isaiah's vision of God, 
What response does that draw out from us? How do we live in response to that idea of God? And I just want to say two things on this. The first, and these these are two that are really important to me, that I believe, from my vision of God, are really key. Again, these might be different for you. Let's talk about it. But I think it seems really clear to me, from my vision of God, that this idea of equity for all under grace is in there. And what I mean by that is that sense of Isaiah doesn't get to stand in that overwhelming throne room because Isaiah is special. Isaiah is ruined. Isaiah has no right to be there. I have no right to be there. You have no right to be there. None of us have enough accomplishments or power under our belt to step into the throne room of God and go, this is safe. I'm all right. I deserve to be here. It's so far beyond us that we, we have no chance, no possibility to exist in that space, except that God reaches out and says, it's safe for you to be here. I welcome you. I permit you. And now the thing for me about that is, if that grace reaches far enough for me, that's not because I'm special. That's because it reaches far enough for everyone. If we have that experience of God, it's not for us to turn around and go, now I am on a special pedestal of extra holiness and I'm exceptional and I'm so good and look down on everybody else. That Our response to that should be the humble um, wonder to look around and know that the God who makes me welcome, despite me having no right to be in their presence, is the God that does the same gracious welcome to everybody else. And I think you see that in Isaiah. You flick through the rest of the chapters of Isaiah. One of the things that's in there is this sense of the sort of universalism, the inclusivity that this is for everybody. He has seen how much bigger God is than humankind. And so lots of the things that Isaiah talks about are things that extend to everybody all at once. Sing to the Lord. Let it be known to all the world. All hands will go limp. Every heart will melt with fear. This is the plan for the whole world, stretched out over all nations, all you people of the world. I love this bit. It will be the same for priest as for people, for the master as for servant, for mistress as for her servant, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor as for creditor. It will be the same. Because Isaiah has seen God, and Isaiah knows that Isaiah didn't get to be in God's presence because of Isaiah. Isaiah got to be in God's presence because of God. And so whoever God chooses to extend God's grace to, they are made welcome. The same. The same for everybody. And this idea that we have of sort of tears, of like second-class citizens, of some people being better than others, is just a a nonsense when you realize the grace of God. And so this is a really important response to me to my vision of God, is it is equity and inclusive for everyone. And any sense of an attitude of superiority, of I'm better than them, or I deserve to be here more, or I've behaved better, or well done me, is a nonsense and will not make sense in the domain of God. If you step into the domain of God with an attitude of superiority, I am really confident you will feel lost. Put my house on it. And then the second thing sort of related but not quite exactly the same i think this vision of god exposes the absurdity the ridiculousness the nonsense of the scramble that we have for might for supremacy for outdoing each other by being stronger by being bigger by winning because we've seen 
the size of God's power, and it throws ours into, it just shows how ridiculous and puny and insignificant we are next to the power of God. And more than that, it shows that it is not in the character of God to use that overwhelming power to be overwhelming. Do you see what I mean? Isaiah stood before a God who could have obliterated the entire universe with a snap of their hand, And instead of that, God uses their hand to reach out and extend welcome. The character of God is to, in possession of overwhelming power, use that power to be gracious, merciful, and welcoming. And so it just gives the lie to this nonsense of all of our human efforts to try and get on top of each other, to be bigger than the person next to us, to win, to win, to conquer. And again, I think you see that all through the rest of Isaiah. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, for removal, for just not existing anymore, will be fuel for the fire. They will no longer rely on him who struck them down. We're not going to live in a world of who can strike who down first. They will truly rely on the Lord. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. This is a picture of radical peace. In perfect faithfulness, God has done wonderful things. You've made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin. The idea of fortifications, of conquest, of militarism, of fighting, are just going to be gone. And I love this. This is from Isaiah 25, which I feel like encapsulates both of those things. That sense of equity and inclusion for all, and that sense of doing away with conquest and supremacy. On this mountain, the Lord will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. God will remove God's people's disgrace from all the earth. And so for me, for my vision of God... God is a God of overwhelming power, but a God of overwhelming grace. And our response to that then should be to try and live in a world that welcomes and extends that grace to everybody on the basis that they are loved, not that they are better or worse. And to live in a world that doesn't strive for conquest or supremacy or to impress people. I don't just mean getting rid of conquest in the sense of Putin assembling troops on the Ukrainian border. I literally mean in the small day-to-day stuff of life as well. I mean, Ben, when you rev your car and try and beat the BMW off the lights on the ring road to make some sort of, like, look-at-me point. Any sense in which we're trying to outdo each other, become supreme, be better than the people next to us, is a nonsense in the domain of the God who is all-powerful and all-gracious. That's my 2P, and that is my time. So I'm just going to leave us with these three questions. And again, I think talking to each other about these is, is key. What is your vision of God? What do you see in Isaiah's vision of God? And how do we respond in our lives to that vision of who God is? Uh, yeah. I think, for example, trying to impress people by wearing your jumper the right way around. It's not necessary. doesn't matter. God welcomes me regardless. Um, let's pray.
Lord God, thank you that you are beyond our imagination, but that you also stoop low enough to make yourself known to us. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see you more clearly for ourselves and together as a church. Help us to have a, a, a true vision of who you are and what your character is. Thank you that your grace allows us to be in your presence. Help us to extend that grace to everyone around us. Help us lose our attitude of superiority and our aspiration of supremacy and live in humble service. Amen.